I am out of shape. I, I discovered this in very graphic terms yesterday. I went on a hike, and I was remembering that long ago I had a healthy body. Long ago, I could just hike. And I had these distant memories of running and running and running and just having no thought to it, running. I can remember being amazed at how soon after I stopped playing soccer, th this body just kind of fell into disrepair. I became unfit. And then a couple years after graduation, yes, thank you. A couple years after that, I tried to go full speed playing soccer. And my lungs hurt so bad, I thought they were bleeding. And I thought I was going to die. <laughs> It was just so strange to have gone from that to that. Right now, my body is unfit. And when I exercise it, I know it pretty quickly. Uh, our bodies tell us that loudly, intensely. We're all familiar with the signals. When you try to do something you are not fit to do, you're ill-equipped for. We know when our muscles are weak, when we try to exercise them. And we can't deny those, we can't deny those things, the obvious workings of the visible body, or the obvious failings of the visible body, the outer man. And yet, we seem pretty willing to deny the inner person. We are willfully ignorant when it comes to the inner person. Our souls. It is ironic that the everlasting part of us, this, this person within, the part that will continue forever, tends to get less attention, less care, than the perishing parts. So, one way of thinking about that is in a very real sense, humans are shallow, incredibly shallow. We live at the surface. We give most attention to the shallowest parts to our sensations, to our feelings. Those things that are affected by weather, things that are affected by food and digestion, by whether we've had a shower or not, the softness of clothes, or the, the tightness of clothes, the visible comparisons with others. That level, that's where we tend to live. But we have souls. We are embodied souls. And in the soul, and from the soul, is where faith comes from. That's where faith exists, where faith is exercised. From God's everlasting perspective, faith is the exercise of the soul. It's the soul taking action. It's the inner person being active, living not according to what is seen, not according to the shallow bits, but according to what is unseen. We hear that from Hebrews. Faith is the conviction of things unseen. So it's living according to eternity. An act of faith is living according to something that's eternal not to what is perishing. The church father Irenaeus said, 
the glory or the reflection of God, the glory of God, is a soul fully alive. That is, a person living fully by faith. Not just bodily active, but a soul that is is active, living fully by faith. That is the glory, that is the reflection of God. Well, this bringing into full life is what we see Jesus doing in John chapter 9. So please open the Bible. If you haven't, we're in John chapter 9 as we're moving through this gospel. And in this chapter, we see Jesus bring a man who was born blind into an everlasting relationship with him. And as he does it, the man comes fully alive. And in contrast to him, stands a group of religious leaders, a group of Pharisees, who decide to put their faith in their own authority, to put their faith in the flesh. So that in the end, Jesus says, at the end of the chapter, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, putting your faith in your own authority, your guilt remains. This occasion is pretty familiar to readers of the Bible. If you've read through the Gospel of John, it's a pretty arresting, gripping moment. It's at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we've been looking at the last few weeks, where the Jews were remembering God having delivered them in the Exodus, delivered them from Egypt, and then leading them for 40 years through the wilderness, through the desert. He led them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, they remembered that. There was a nightly nightly part of the festival where they lit candles, and the connection was made of the Lord who led them, the great I Am, leading them in light. And last week we saw Jesus drawing the connection for them, the light, the pillar of fire, I am the light of the world, he said. I was the pillar of fire. I am the great I am. And he concluded the conversation with, before Abraham was, I am. And they got it. And they picked up stones to stone him. Well, now in chapter 9, that conversation has just ended. Jesus is passing out of one of the temple gates. And as he does so, He pauses, and there's a beggar there. We know that he pauses because the disciples are... It says Jesus saw a man, and then the disciples ask a question. So they're looking, what is is he up to? So, Rabbi, this man you're looking at, how about him? Was it his parents who sinned or him who sinned that he sits here in such misery? Because it is miserable. Day by day, this man is sitting, cut off from people, begging. His whole existence, totally dependent on help from others. He's in dire poverty. And so the disciples conclude... 
this situation is so bad, it has to be that either his family sinned or he sinned. But Jesus comes to reorient everything. That's why he came into the world. He comes to reorient, and that's what he does here. In verse 3, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is not about sin. It's not about what sin does, but it is about God and what God does. That's what this man is about. Verse 4, he says, we must be working God's works. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's reminding them, right? He's reminding them of the conversation that they just overheard. He's reminding them of the festival. He has told them, I am the pillar of fire for Israel. I am what Israel sees by. He's told them in the festival. And now he comes to this moment and he says, let me show you what that looks like for an individual. We've been thinking of talking about what it means for the, the people. Here's what it means for an individual. Watch. I am God in the world right now. While I'm here, eternal day is here. While I'm here, God's works are exclusively through me. The pillar of fire is here. Now watch. Let me show you what the works of God are like. And then, strange. Verse 6. He spits on the ground. In the dust. He makes mud. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. That's weird. That is a surprising action. We're being speculative. It may be that Jesus was signaling to those who were watching uh, just as he had claimed to be God in the pillar of fire, and he had claimed to be the one who spoke from the burning bush to Moses, the great I am, so he also is the creator God who took dust from the ground and shaped it into the form of a man and breathed life into it. He is life. And even now, he can bring life through dust. It could also be that the Pharisees were offended by all sorts of uncleanness. But he is signaling even his handling of spit and dirt is clean because he is cleanness itself. Whatever standards they had developed, he obliterates. He is cleanness. We don't, we don't know. We know exactly what he was signaling there. But either way, what is most important is that the blind man does what Jesus said to do. This blind man acts not according to what seems obvious, but according to trust. 
he has been to the pool of Siloam many times. That's the public bath in Jerusalem. He's washed there many times. But this time, he goes with expectation because he was sent there. This time, a man who calls himself the light of the world and who had a big crowd following him stopped and talked to him and gave him full attention. And though everyone else had told him many times that his suffering was the result of sin, this light of the world was reframing that, was telling him, that's not what it's about. Your suffering has another meaning, Jesus says to him. And Jesus said in his hearing, God was going to work through him and get glory for himself. In other words, what God does the things God does, the kind of power that he has, would be shown in him. This powerless beggar trapped in a world without light. Somehow God and the glory of God would come there? And he believed it. He believed it. It seems to me that a life of begging without sight had turned this man into one who trusts God. He had to trust for his survival. He trusted God for life. He'd come to understand that life depends on provision from God. He was a person prepared as one who knew the meaning of faith. And so when Jesus comes along and claimed to, be doing God, claimed to be doing God's work and told him to go, he went. And he came back seeing. And then the controversy begins. A work of God is done. God's glory has been done. And that brings controversy. When God acts... There's controversy. John tells us in verse 14 that that day was a Sabbath. So the Pharisees and elders of the Jews fall into disputes about how is it that this could be done, this good thing could be done by a Sabbath breaker, a rule breaker. And they really don't want to believe that it even happened. They take some efforts to, to discount that it even happened. Eventually they have to call the parents in. Well, see, actually blind, is this the son who people say was born blind. So failing at the denial that something actually happened, they don't want the obvious conclusions to be drawn. Well, if this thing happened, this man must be who he says he is. So they try to undermine that. So they say, verse 24, to this man, give glory to God. That is, they don't want honor for Jesus. Don't give honor to Jesus. Just give honor to God. You were healed. Good, good, give honor to God. Cut Jesus out of that. Don't connect him. Don't connect Jesus with the Lord. Which, of course, is what Jesus had been doing. I am the light. 
We know this man is a sinner. But something's happening in this man who now sees. Something has happened. And something is now happening. And it unfolds in the course of the event. It unfolds for those people in that moment. And it unfolds for us in the course of the reading. Having lived a life trained to see by faith, not by sight. Literally trained to see by faith and not by sight. He exercised faith in Jesus by believing what he said to do. By believing that Jesus could do something. By believing that his life could change. Then in verse 17, so he, takes, he makes an act of faith. Then in verse 17, he's asked, he, he healed your eyes. What do you say about him? He takes a step. He's a prophet. It's another step. Then he takes another step. They demand that he deny good of Jesus. That's the give glory to God. And he answers, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. That is, I'm not qualified to sort people out like you guys. You're the sorters. Well, I'll, I'll leave that up. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. That is a basic testimony, isn't it? It's the basic testimony. Anyone who's realized we can't save ourselves has come to that. All of us who have realized, I cannot do anything about my moral situation. I am a moral problem. Anyone who's come to that realization has come to that. One thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. We couldn't see our way out. That's where we were. Every direction we looked, there was a cul-de-sac. Every direction we looked, we found sin was with us still. No matter how far I go that way, and I get there, I'm still me. Sin is still with me. I'm still guilty of rebellion against God, no matter how far I go there. And then we accepted. I'm helpless. Wherever I go, I am there. And I'm helpless. And we made a move of faith. We accepted Jesus at his word. And we let him take command. We let him tell us who we are. And then when we truly put our life into his hands, we found that we could see. We could see ourselves in the new way that he sees us. And not only that, not only did we find ourselves new and different, we found that we could see the whole world in a different way. The light of God that came to me also enabled me to see everything differently, everyone differently. So not only is the light of God in us, but by his light, we see. 
And that's what happens to this fellow. So as he continues to exercise faith, he goes from begging in abject dependence, being considered among the accursed, believing he's among the accursed. He goes from that to confronting the Jesus-opposing religious leaders for their refusal to accept the obvious. He's a little saucy here, isn't he? This is astonishing. This is an amazing thing, he says. You don't know where he comes from. And yet, he healed my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, like, I'd love to see his gestures. You guys are amazing. Never. Since the world began, has it been heard that someone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It's astonishing you don't get that. He refuses to go along with willful lies. It doesn't matter how much social force they have, how much power they bring, how much pressure. He will not go along with the lie. He can see quite clearly, you hate Jesus. That's what this is about. You hate him. He knows he could get into their good graces. Just go along with it. Deny Jesus is good. Deny Jesus had done the work. But what's happened is he is now seeing according to heavenly light. So that what is wrong and wicked appears wrong and wicked. He's seeing by the realms of God. He's evaluating, he's judging, he's measuring by the realms of God. He sees by the light of God. And they want him to suffer for it. They try to make him suffer for it. They cast him out of membership in the community. They put him out of the synagogue. This is what happens. This movement is what happens when we exercise faith. Like this man, we live from the soul, not from the flesh. Not from our sensations, not from our feelings, not from the shallow parts. The light that we see by, the wisdom that we come to live by, the wisdom that we use to evaluate, to measure, is what James calls heavenly wisdom. It's from above. It's given by the light of God. Not from earthly wisdom, not from earthly norms. I don't think I'm overstating the case to say that America, the Western world, has an epidemic of the soul. It's affecting our souls. There is a serious atrophy in the soul. Souls are fat with lack of exercise. And so we live from the outer person rather than from the soul such that we live constantly with the consequences of that kind of life. And this is, we've taken this to a new level 
an epidemic level, it, this is a human thing. It goes all the way back. Uh, in the second century, Christians had a way of talking about this. They called it weakness of the soul. There's a single word that covers it, but it's weakness of the soul. One priest wrote, soul weakness refers to that which is opposed to endurance. A kind of giving up in the face of patience and sufferings and anguish. Soul weakness gives up easily in the face of trouble, in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty. Soul weakness gives up because it's living according to the flesh. And it renders a freed soul easily tempted to cooperate with sin. Easily tempted to the world's rebellion. So in other words, when life is tough, rather than living in the power and the grace of God, in the midst of that trouble, the weak or fat soul gives up and gives in to whatever is easier, what will quickly comfort the senses, what will quickly comfort the feelings, and will placate attacking spiritual forces. I don't want to engage that battle. That's too much. It's too much. And so we give in. And when a soul gets weak, a person gets stuck. When Jesus explained why he used parables, this will be familiar, he quoted Isaiah, you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown fat. Or the King James, I like the King James version on this. It's, their heart has waxed gross. It means like heart has grown thickened, uh, but gross, I like our double meaning. <laughs> the heart's gotten gross. They couldn't receive his teaching by faith. They, they couldn't hold on to it. They couldn't grasp it by faith. So they couldn't understand it. The soul had grown weak. Spiritual words, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, but they weren't living from the spirit. And with unexercised souls, truth just washes right over. It just goes right past us, over our heads. Likewise, us, when we reduce everything to material causes, material things, material explanations, physicality, emotion, when we fall into habits of living according to the flesh and ignoring our souls, then our souls can't bear the weight of faith. Can't bear acts of faith. Hard things then overwhelm and crush us. I don't feel like I need to convince you of that. You just look around, or we've all experienced it. So what do we do? What do we do if our souls get out of shape? The soul becomes unfit. Well, like a body that gets unfit, a soul can't just jump suddenly into sustained, rigorous activity, as I found yesterday. <laughs> Need to work up. A weak soul 
needs exercise of faith to get stronger. And that happens by beginning to trust Jesus. Beginning to trust his commands. Beginning to obey his commands. Like this blind man, he received mud on his face and then he went to wash because Jesus had said so. It strikes me actually at this moment that in putting mud on him, Jesus may also have been drawing attention to his state. You have mud on you. You need cleansing. But Jesus says, go do this, and soul work, exercise of the soul, is to obey him. Here's some commands of Jesus. We have so many opportunities to just exercise faith. Repent. About, Jesus has about 49, 50 distinct commands. Repent. Follow me. Forgive your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Give without seeking recognition. Keep your word. Be honest. Don't lie. Seek the things of heaven. Leave judgment to God rather than you judging. Ask God for things and expect him to give you good things, to give you what's best. Give him your worries. Hand them over. Take up your cross. Embrace suffering. Serve others. There are many more. These are all eternal things. Do you know? Jesus commands us to live according to the invisible, according to the kingdom that lasts forever. He commands us to live, to act here and now by reference to the long term, by reference to what's going to last, to seek his help for endurance and to push through the short-term easy way. So, whenever we make a decision, whenever we act with that long-term heavenly orientation, we're exercising faith. And our souls get stronger. Being honest to your own social detriment is an act of faith. All of, these, all of these practices, all of being obedient to whatever Jesus said there will not serve you well in the short term. It probably will mean you struggle because of it. It's living, living for the everlasting. So finally, these habits of soul, are those, they're those things we do in order to orient ourselves to the kingdom we shall be part of, to the kingdom we are now part of, and to set our mind on the things of the realms of God rather than what presses on us here and demands that we, we yield to. So throughout the history of the church, there have been a number of practices that have proven especially helpful for orienting God's people to that everlasting kingdom. Here's a few. 
receiving the word, whether that's uh, orally, uh, hearing, or by reading. Jesus is the bread from heaven. His words are life to us. So by receiving the living word, believing him, trusting him, we feed our souls. Second, lifting our hearts to him. Lifting the soul to him. Speaking to him. Prayer. That exercises the soul. Prayer is kind of a strange thing when it comes down to it. Especially when you do it out loud. Speaking to someone who is invisible. That's faith. You trust that the invisible God hears, receives, will act. Third, singing, speaking praises. Again, it's an act of faith. Fourth, giving. Giving everything, everything around us, especially during a, what do we call this? Is this the recession, inflationary period, whatever we're in? Giving is an incredibly clear act of faith. That would seem to be a strange thing to do. Everything else says, clutch, hold on, grasp, take care of yourself. But to give says, I trust God with all that I am and all that I have. So each of these four basic practices that have been part of the history of the church as uh, exercising the soul. They have no obvious, visible, short-term benefit. They're soul actions based on faith. Without them, without a practice where we are exercising the soul, when trouble comes, we will not act rightly. Um, Richard Wormbrand, the Romanian who suffered uh, almost 20 years in a communist prison, he noted that it was the little things, the little acts of faith all along the way that made the big act of faith possible. Those who hadn't practiced faith, who didn't have souls exercised, when it came to the test, they failed. If we don't have exercised souls, we will be too weak to act rightly. But with these exercises of soul, we will be like the man who received sight. We'll grow bolder. We'll grow stronger with each act. We'll find ourselves bearing witness and we'll find ourselves in intimate relationship with the God who sees all of that, who, whose realms we are part of when we act in that way. So may the Lord help us. May he give us courage to believe this, to make choices from the inner person. Lord, we do, we ask for that. You know our weakness. You know we're dust, and we tend to live from the dust. You know we want the easy thing. 
Even when we, we ask you to grow us spiritually, we want the easy way. Lord, help us by your Spirit. Bring us to life. And we know that you give us opportunity to trust you. That every person in this room this week will have opportunity to trust you. I pray you would train us up. Train us in faithfulness. That when we do, when we have to act from the soul, we will. In Jesus' name.